Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become his saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. And what I'd like to do, I'd like to continue our trend of thinking that we had last evening. I spoke to you on the way to walk, the wrong walk, and tonight on the way to walk. Three times in the first 17 verses, you'll find walking in some context or other. Here he says, walk in love, of verse 2. Walk as children of light, in verse 8. Verse 15, walk circumspectly. He's still showing our practice, our relationship to Jesus Christ, saying that if we're really in him, you can tell it by our conduct, our behavior. The child of God just lives in a different world. He's fixing to get over into the home and husband and wife relationship and children. And this will help the family, I hope, tonight. This section is on the family. And the Lord only knows if there ever has been a time when we needed help in the families, it's now. The devil's doing more to separate husbands and wives and scatter children. And yet there needs to be a firm stand from the Word of God as to what he says concerning the family. But he works his way into that passage. He deals with three things. First, the submitting of yourself to God. This is verses 1 through 17. Second, submitting yourself to the Holy Spirit, verses 18 through 21. And then submitting yourselves one to another, chapter 5, verse 21, through chapter 6, verse 9. That's where he deals with the husband and the wife, the children, the servants, and the masters. But before we can ever see submission one to another, we must understand submission to God. Back over in the first two verses of the fifth chapter, he said, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. The word followers is where we get our English word mimic. It means imitators. To mimic someone is to do what they do. It's like children. Have you ever seen children mimicking one another? Have you ever had your children, one say, it a, say a certain thing and the other one says it just like him until it about drives you up a wall? Have you ever seen one make a face, the other makes a face just like him? Well, that's mimicking. Except here it's in a good sense. He says be mimics of God. Be followers of God. Be just like him in all that he is. In his person, be like God. As dear children. The word children is born ones. Children by birth who are following in the footsteps of their father. And so here it's a father-son relationship. And walk in love. Conduct yourself, your behavior in love. And this is the love that God is. As Christ also loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. This will remind you of Romans 12, 1 and 2. In fact, there are three verses that almost say the same thing as Romans 12, 1 and 2. Look at verse 2, which I just read, then verse 10, where he said, Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And verse 17, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Three things he said. One, that you present your body as a living sacrifice. This is what he says in verse 2, that Christ presented himself an offering and a sacrifice and to prove what is acceptable unto God. And that's what he said in verse 10, that you might understand what the will of God is. That's what he said in Romans 12 too. Well, here Paul has the concept of the Old Testament, Old Testament sweet savor offering. The first three chapters of the book of Leviticus deal with the perfection offerings. If you remember, if you studied the section, you know that when they brought to the door of the tabernacle their offering for a perfection offering, the person would bring the bullet, place his hands on it, and when he placed his hand on it, he would say, by his action, I'm not perfect, but my sacrifice is. His sacrifice must be without spot and without blemish. Everything that he was supposed to be, he recognized he wasn't. But he said by his sacrifice, everything I'm supposed to be, my sacrifice is. I'm not, but my sacrifice is. Therefore, I want to place my hands and identify with the sacrifice I'm fixing to offer. Then when he killed the sacrifice, it was cut apart and laid on the altar. God looked at it and accepted it as the man's sacrifice and said, this I'm pleased with. I accept it because it's what I required. And it represented the offerer. His offering represented him. And then it said it was a sweet smell in the nostrils of God, which is the approval of God. And here he said that Christ Jesus gave himself for us. That means instead of us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. In other words, I wasn't perfect, but when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, my sacrifice was perfect. The reason God forgave me is that I put my trust in a perfect offering who represented me. He gave himself for me. So here he says, walk in love. And love is a self-sacrificing love for the object loved. In essence, Jesus Christ gave himself for the object loved. And here he said, you live in submission to God whereby you give yourself for the object loved. And he's fixing to say, love one another. He's fixing to say, love your wife. Love your husband. Submit one to another. Uh, but here he said it's a self-sacrificing love for the object love. But when he said he gave himself, this speaks of surrender. And a submitted life to God to be all that God requires us to be for others. I was trying to get the grasp of this today. Trying just to get a hold of what he said. And when I saw surrendered life, when I saw surrendered offering, I saw submitted offering, a life to God to be all God requires us to be for others, I saw that how Jesus Christ gave himself 
for us so that He could be for us all that God required and be unto others what God wanted Him to be, then I begin to understand how that I am to be unto others what God requires me to be. In other words, first I must submit myself to God before I can ever be unto my wife what God requires me to be. You cannot be unto your husband what God requires you to be unless you first submit yourself to God. Selfishness manifests itself as self. Or self manifested itself as selfishness. It works both ways. But in self-sacrifice, when you give yourself unto the Lord, then in the Lord's will, you can become unto the other what God requires you to be. Which is just simply saying, I have an obligation, first of all, to take my hands off of myself and submit myself to God as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is the most reasonable thing I've ever done in my lifetime. Which is to say, Lord, I want to walk in a love that loves others and causes me to give myself unto Thee, and I will be unto everybody else what You require me to be. Which is to say, none of us will ever be unto others what we're supposed to be unless we first surrender to God. When we get over to submission in husband and wife relationship, you'll never be submitted to one another in the family until first you've surrendered to God. When we have surrendered to Him, when we've submitted to Him, when we put up the white flag and said, God, here I am. Now I want you to take me and make me all that I'm supposed to be to others. Then we have the right attitude of submission. Because it carries the idea of sacrifice, surrender, and submitting. So this is the concept of the sweet-smelling savor. That He says, let your behavior be such in your self-sacrifice that you're giving up yourself unto the Lord that it's acceptable and pleasing to God. Which means my first motive in the family is that I first please God. And if I can please God, then I'm pleased. And you should seek first to please God above everything else. But then he says, but fornication, now he's going to go through a list of things and we're going to have to hurry right through these things if we get all this in tonight. He said... This has no part in your life. This has no place in your life if you're submitted to God. First submit your life to God, then you'll separate yourself from all of these. You'll have none of these in your life. Fornication, this is illicit intercourse in general. Immorality of all kinds. Uncleanness, impurity is the word. Or covetousness, which means a desire to have more. He said, don't let it be once named among you as become as saints. And taken in its context, this covetousness connected with uncleanness and, and fornication and immorality, it says that if we submit ourselves unto God, what we want from others will not be for our own covetousness, but for their benefit. If I give myself up, I will not be a covetous individual, I'll be a giving individual. I won't try to submit to the other to get something from him, I'll submit to him to be unto him all that I'm supposed to be. Which is just saying that these things have no place in us, covetousness. This is fulfilling our desire. So is fornication, uncleanness, any of it. He said, don't even let this be named among you as becoming saints. Neither filthiness, which is immoral conduct, obscenity. He says, nor foolish talking. Now this is silly talking, but it's corrupt talking. It's not just 
kidding around with each other, but it's corrupt talking, senseless talking, nor jesting, this is coarse jesting, which are not convenient, which is not fitting and befitting and becoming, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no whoremonger, and this basically means a male prostitute, it's somebody who is just a sex pervert, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And this is covetousness, to where you desire what someone else has more than anything else, and you want what he has, which means you're an idolater, that you want to worship that which that man has, and you'll pay any price to get it and to have it. Let no man deceive you with vain words. The word vain means empty, devoid of truth. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. And what Paul is simply saying is that if we're going to surrender ourselves to God, we're not going to be partakers and sharers in those who are ungodly. He just says you saints live right because you've taken your hands off yourself. Don't indulge in these things because you've submitted yourself unto God. So walk in love one to another for the benefit of the others, the object loved. Verse 8. For you were sometimes darkness, but now you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So this is the fruit, which means the product, the end result of, of the work of the Holy Ghost in an individual's life. And it's just like a tree. Once it's been planted, the seed is there. Then it produces uh, the trunk and then the, the limbs and then the leaves and then finally the the buds and the blossoms and first thing you know, the fruit. Well, when the Holy Ghost is working on the inside of us, it's working in light. And he says that the fruit of the Spirit's in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. I hear we have the word proving, which means to put to the test for the purpose of approving, to see if that thing is right. Acceptable means well, pleasing unto God. Put it to the test for the purpose of having God's approval. And it means living so as to please God under the approval of God. In a moment when we get to the family, this will overshadow everything we say. That each person, each husband, each wife, each son, each daughter must first surrender and submit to the authority of God to be all that God requires. And if we are unto the others what God requires, that's acceptability to God and God's pleased with it. And if God's pleased with me being a husband because I've done what he said, then I'm not living for myself but being unto the rest of the family all that God requires me to be. Glory, I got all that out. <laughs> like I said, I, I don't know if I can get it all out or not. It's in there. And I can see it. And here he says that if you got the approval of God because you found his will and you're sacrificing yourself for the benefit of those objects love because you're giving yourself unto the Lord, then it's well pleasing in his sight and it's acceptable because you put it to the test. You've tried it and found that it'll work. Verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And here he's speaking not so much of our conduct as he is our convictions acceptable unto God. Our conduct should be pleasing unto God, but we should have convictions that are acceptable unto God. Which means don't take part and don't try to participate and be sharers in darkness. Don't try to live like you did before you got saved. Don't try to go back out there and live in sin again. 
And he said they're unfruitful, which won't produce anything. Works of darkness. And he said, you go out into those things, they won't produce anything. You won't have anything when it's left over. You won't have any crop that'll be good. And he said, rather reprove them. Reprove means turn the light on. It means expose it, manifest it. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepeth, and rise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. All he's saying is simple. In that, don't even participate in darkness. Don't try to live in immorality. Don't try to go back into sin again. But, and said, don't let people influence you to come back. He said, some will tell you that it's all right. And this is what he meant down in verse 6. He said, let no man deceive you with vain words, empty words. Because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Some will say, well, it's all right. There's nothing wrong with it. And he says, you children of God, walk as children of light. Don't walk in darkness. Don't walk in sin. And don't let your friends get you out in sin. And this is especially true young folks of the day. When your buddies start saying, come on, it won't hurt you to take the drugs. Come on, come on, you can enjoy it. Nothing out in sin will produce righteousness and holiness and goodness. And those are unfruitful works. And he says, why get back out there when you won't have any crop coming in? Said, isn't, said, don't spend your time trying to participate with them. Walk in righteousness. And even if you have to expose what some of them are doing. And that doesn't mean snitching. It just means take your stand with strong convictions. And when they say participate, you say no. And that's like turning the light on whether they like it or don't like it. You've got convictions against it. And once you have convictions and you're being all that God wants you to be and that's acceptable unto Him, then you have the consciousness in your heart it's well-pleasing unto the Lord how you submitted yourself unto God. And He says, I'm pleased with it. That's a sweet-smelling savor in my nostrils, God's saying. Now he comes to the third type of walking. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. This comes to the third concept of the way to walk. He said walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. The word circumspectly means cautiously. In other words, what he says is, don't go blundering down through the world foolishly, senselessly. Which means, don't just go down whistling and saying, well, doesn't matter to me. Everything's all right. I can handle the world. I can handle the devil. And I can handle everybody else. He says, when you're walking through the world, walk circumspectly. I got a good illustration of that one day, deer hunting. Now, I love to deer hunt. That's about the only time I have time for, only type of hunting I have time for. And one day I was out in the woods, sitting up against a tree. And I heard a deer walking behind me. I froze. Now listen, I could tell it's going this way. They cut my eyes around, it was a doe. Well, it wasn't doe season. And I couldn't shoot a doe, wouldn't, wouldn't, don't want to shoot a doe. But I, I watched the doe. Now I believe that doe knew it was deer season. Now, I can't prove that because I don't know whether Doe do can reason up. But by the way, she was walking. She knew something was up. And she didn't go blundering down through the woods. She'd take two or three steps and stop, throw the ears up, 
and wouldn't move. He could see anything but that head. And she'd turn around and she'd watch and she'd listen and she'd look and then she'd take two or three more steps and stop, throw those ears up and look around cautiously, very carefully looking for anything that moved. Now that's a concept that Paul said we ought to go walking down through this world. Because, brother, the devil's in this world, and he's out to get you, and the demons of hell are out to get you, and the sinners are after you, and everybody's after you, and trying to get you to fall, and you ought to very carefully and very cautiously, with your head on your shoulders, not senselessly, walk down through this world. Very carefully. That's true of your family. He's fixing to go into the family. You ought to be careful in your own household, your relationship to everybody else. He says, keep your head on your shoulders. It's like a soldier walking through a landmine or a, a ground that's just covered in mines. Now, if you're in the army and, and your captain or sergeant told you, said, go through that minefield. Said, there are mines out there that blow you up. Said, just go out through there. And you said, okay, I'll go. And you just start strutting out through there and said, won't bother me. You get blown to pieces. You know how you'd walk through? Very cautiously. And very carefully, having all your faculties in operation. And Paul says, when you conduct yourself in your behavior in this world, have all your spiritual, mental, and emotional faculties under the controlling power of the Holy Ghost and be cautious of your conduct. Oh, he says, walk circumspectly in this world, redeeming the time. Here's a precious truth. The word redeeming means to purchase, to buy up. And he says, buy up the time, which means to buy up the opportunity. Purchase the opportunity. Now, I wouldn't even thought I'd get to tell this, but I'm going to tell it. Lord wants me to tell it, and I wouldn't even thought so. Last week, I went to Knoxville, Tennessee, and I didn't want to go to Knoxville. Well, I wanted to stay home. I wanted to go back over there to the church, and, and I just wanted to stay home with my family, and I didn't want to go to Knoxville. And I tried my best. I even canceled the meeting. Brother Wade to tell you, I tried to set this Bible study up last week. Down here, I want to stay home. And I wasn't buying up the time. See, I wasn't seizing the opportunity. I wasn't conscious of it. I just wanted to stay home. And the Holy Ghost, once I tried to change the meeting around, He changed it back around. I couldn't even rest till I got the thing set back up. Even on the way up there, ran into a, 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 just a snowstorm coming across. And I called the pastor. I thought, well, maybe that snowstorm's up there too and I won't have to go. <laughs> I just didn't want to go to Knoxville. And I didn't know what to do it. I didn't know why I was going. And I got up up there. And, and, and all the time I was there, I wanted to come home. Three days after the third night, I knew I, God was as through with me preaching as he could be. And I thought, well, since God's through with me, I may as well go home. But I couldn't go home. I couldn't have the liberty to go home. I couldn't figure out what in the world I was doing there. And instead of just saying, now, Lord, I know I'm supposed to be here all these days. I was thinking of some way I could get out of this. You know, I mean, you know, I knew God was still with me, but I couldn't, as far as the preaching was concerned, but couldn't leave. Well, come find out, this pastor and his little family, four boys, had four boys, just like stair steps. 
this pastor had been persuaded by one of the men that he needed to go to work, you know, and and uh, not receive any salary, whatnot, and and uh, at the time the church is paying him well, and and the money was coming in, and the pastor just thought, well, I just, you know, I just won't work. I'll go to work, and I won't let the church pay me anything. So he did, but he missed God only. And for the whole month of January, he only made $150. Now, that's not a week. That's for the whole month. And there he's got a wife and four little kids. And, uh, of course, this is the end of February. And, oh, boy, that's all the money he'd drawn. And he was only making $3 and something an hour. And, and wasn't working full time at that. And they were having a hard time. And God wouldn't let me preach the last night and let that preacher preach. And God told me to take an offering for him and for, and for me to give. And it's not necessarily if you know what I gave. I, I, I gave out of the love offering what God said. And that was real funny too because it left me with $75. And what was even more precious about that was first part of the week, the pastor asked me how much it's going to cost me to go up there and back. And I said about $75. So God knew what it's going to take me to get up there and back. But anyway, God said do it. And folks, I've never been so blessed in all my lifetime over giving, you know, over doing something else. And God let him preach the last night. wouldn't let me preach. Never had that happen before. I preached four nights and last night God said, oh, you can't preach. Let him preach. And boy, he got up. They packed the house out that night. Folks came, and the preachers came, and people came. Scared the pastor to death. He said, man, they've come to hear you preach. They hadn't come to hear me. I said, brother, I don't care how many people come. If God's not in it, I'm not doing the preaching. You are. Well, anyway, anyway, boy, God preached that fella. And the power of God is all over the place. And, and God blessed the offering. When he got home, there's over 400 and something dollars in that offering for him to take care of his little ones. And that's why. And I felt just about that tall. He even tried to talk me out of giving my part. I said, man, not on your life. I said, I want the blessing out of giving. I said, praise God, the blessing is mine. Because Jesus said, more blessed to give than to receive. But here's what I wanted to tell you. Like I said, I never thought I'd get to tell that. But I was minimizing the opportunity. I wasn't seizing the opportunity and buying up the time. What he says is, don't minimize any opportunity you've got for the glory of God because whatever opportunity you've got, you buy up that time because you may never have that opportunity again. What he's saying to all of you, don't miss any opportunity on the job. Don't let it come. Walk circumspectly. Don't on the job lose your temper and let something come out your mouth lest you lose that opportunity. He's saying, don't let it so happen that you think, well, it doesn't matter to me how I live today. Just today won't matter. It's that one day when you don't buy up that time and use that time wisely that you may trip up and cause more people to fall that one day. He says, put your head on your shoulders and buy up every opportunity you've got. It's just like if I were be the type of person who said, I can't go to churches that have less than 100 membership and I got to have those who have more than 500 in order for me to go, I would be minimizing every opportunity that would be less than 500. And if I'm right with God, I don't care if I'm preaching to five or 500, I'm to preach to that five just like to the 500 because that's an opportunity in order to buy it up for the glory of God and keep my head and keep my senses and know God gave it me that opportunity and be everything in that segment of time I'm supposed to be for God's glory. That won't cost you anything. That's all in there. Had to preach a while, all right. But that's what he's saying. 
Wherefore be not unwise, unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, coming to that, that brings us to the section that we enter into the will of the Lord. What is the will of the Lord? He has just finished teaching us the truth of self-sacrifice unto the Lord. Give ourselves unto Him. Submission unto Him. Surrender unto Him. Being totally His. Acknowledging, Lord, I'm not mine. Here I am. I'm Yours. And I want to be and I want to do what You want me to do. With that concept, He enters in now to show you what the will of the Lord is. And second, will of the Lord is not only to submit yourselves unto God, but to submit yourself to the Holy Ghost who lives inside you. To be filled with the Spirit. Look at verse 18. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now here, basically, is the simplest definition I know of to be filled with the Spirit. The word means to be saturated, and to be controlled and motivated by. See this coat? This coat is filled with nothing. But, now, this coat is filled with Charles Shipman. In other words, once I put this coat on, the coat's now under my control. And he says that believers are to submit themselves unto the Lord in such a fashion that they can be controlled and motivated at will by the Holy Ghost. And it doesn't mean at one time, it means continuously. Continually letting the Holy Spirit fill you. Continually yielding to the Spirit of God. Continually letting Him show you truth. Continually letting Him use you. Continually letting you be everything you're supposed to be under His influence. Now, when that's true, when we are filled with the Spirit of God, controlled and motivated by Him, four things happen. One, speaking. He said, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, this speaking doesn't mean talking to yourself. Speaking to yourself looks like He's saying, well, I'm going to start talking to myself. But that's not what He's saying. Speaking to yourself is the word that means to speak out. And you start speaking among yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. All of a sudden, the, you've got such a sweet fellowship, and he's speaking of the church, that when the Lord fills the church and fills us as the individual members of that church, that all of a sudden, we start singing and making melody. That's the second one. Look at that, because both of them are connected. He said, singing and making melody in your heart unto the Lord. Boy, I like that. This thing of making melody. I don't know much about music. But I know that there, that there is melody and harmony and rhythm in music. But here, the singing and making melody means to praise God. And melody is the pleasing, sweet sounds of sounds of music in sequence. Have you ever heard a group singing melody? Even congregation when the melody starts? It's a sweet sound, but it means every part just like it's supposed to be. It's like uh, a choir, quartet, duet, whatnot. They're making melody. Well, what happens, the real meaning of this, the word comes from the word twang, and it means to play on a musical instrument. 
And what it has reference to is when the Spirit of God fills you, He gets a twanging on your heart <laughs> and making music. <laughs> and when the Holy Ghost gets to making music in your heart, it's a melody. In other words, there's nothing sweeter than the saints of God making music to Jesus. That's what He's saying. Singing, making melody. Where? In your heart. Unto whom? Unto the Lord. It's whenever we start singing unto the Lord and making melody and the sweet sounds of praise and adoration and glory that we're giving unto Him. And that's what singing's all about anyhow. But when you ever get filled with the Spirit of God in the church, all the members are making melody in their hearts unto the Lord. And what a sweet sound of sequence that is. And then he said, Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that one's kind of hard to handle, isn't it? Uh, it didn't just say, in all things give thanks. He said, giving thanks for all things. You know, if you, if you ever get filled with the Spirit of God, He takes a complaint out of you. You ever felt self-pity? Well, if self-pity will take care of itself back up in verse 2. When you have self-sacrifice unto the Lord, you don't have self-pity for yourself because you're not your own. And when you don't have any self-pity for, your for yourself, you don't say, feel sorry for me. You look at yourself and say, well, glory to God, everything's just great. Lord, I thank you for everything's come our way. People get to talking to us who hear about the physical problems we've had here recently. And as I told you, we've seen 16 doctors 76 times now since last September. And it's just been one thing right in behind the other. We don't have any idea why it's all happened. But I know it's teaching us a lot of things. I don't know what it's going to be before it all gets through. But the more I yield to the Lord, the more melody starts going in my heart in the midst of it all. I don't understand that. I, that's not even reasonable. All I know is when I submit myself unto the Lord, and I submit myself unto the Spirit of God, right in the midst of all the sickness and all the trial and everything else, some, a song gets to go in, and he gets to twang it on my soul. And then all of a sudden it starts making melody, and I start saying, thank you, God, for all things. Thank you for the sickness. Thank you for every lesson I've learned. Thank you for the sorrow. Thank you for the heartache. Lord, I thank you for the mountain, and I thank you for the valley. Lord, I just thank you for all things. That's what happens when the Spirit of God fills you. You say, but preacher, i got something I can't handle. What he's saying is, if you'll submit yourself to the Spirit of God, there's nothing that can't be handled in Him. And when He does, you'll give thanks for all things. Things you don't even understand. Things that come your way that people say, well, i got to have a logical explanation. You don't have to have a logical explanation when the Spirit of God fills you. No, he says, giving thanks, and this is sharing. First is speaking, then singing, then sharing. And then, verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. This is subordination. To, to, subor to subject yourself. This is the word that means to place yourself under another. I spoke to you the other night on a military term that means to subject yourself unto another. To place yourself under another. Under his authority and under his control. And here he says that when you yielded to the Spirit of God, you're submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Back to the concept of submitting yourselves unto Christ to be all that Christ expects you to be unto others. Well, here you're submitting yourself, surrendering yourself to be unto the other what God requires that you be. Now he comes to the family. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to come on and get the rest of it. But basically, he starts with wives first. So you ladies here tonight, just before I get through with you, just remember the men's time's coming, okay? And uh, there'll be enough for the men. So while I'm on the ladies, you men can say, Amen, get them preached. But if I were you, I wouldn't say it too loud. Because when we get around to you, they're going to say, Amen, get them preached. <laughs> but it's not a matter of getting one another. Here is the ideal family relationship. We're going to look at the perfect. I learned a lesson one day. You know, you see so many imperfect marriages. You see so many strife-torn families, husbands and wives having problems. And you look around, you see all these, and you don't know what it's supposed to be like. But what taught me a lesson? I read a, a story one time about the FBI and the men in the FBI who recognized counterfeit money. That we have some men working for the FBI that that's their job to recognize counterfeit money. And the story said that those FBI agents who recognize counterfeit money never study counterfeit money. It said they always study the real thing. Because if they start studying counterfeit money, they won't know what's real and what isn't. But if they study the real thing, anything less than that is counterfeit. I thought, Lord, what in the world have I been doing with preaching? I can get up and talk about everything being so bad that you won't know what's supposed to be good. So I decided I'd try to find the ideal and show you what the ideal is, how perfect it's supposed to be, and anything less than that you'll recognize. Our imperfections. I don't have to point out imperfections if I show you the ideal. If I show you the perfect, it's like looking in a mirror. If you look in a mirror and you see yourself, you can tell how you look. It's like when you get up in the morning. You look at yourself in the mirror, you look at your hair, and you can tell your hair and sure look better if you comb it. Amen? You ladies know your faces look better if you do something to them after you get up. Don't you know that? And us men, man, we look better after we do something to these old you know, whiskers and whatnot. What I'm saying is, you look in the mirror and see how it's supposed to be. Well, here it is. This is the perfect, this is the ideal. Being filled with the Spirit of God calls you to submit yourself. Well, here he says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Here's our word for submit. It means to place yourself under Him, under His authority, and under His control. And he goes, he goes, he says, just like you do unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. According to 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, the head of every man is Christ. Now this is saved men. The head of the man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. And the head of the woman is the man. Now put everything in its order. The head of the wife is the husband. The head of the husband is Christ. And the head of Christ is God. 
This is the order. Each one under the other. Now, a matter of rights. In the family, who has rights? Like a family says, well, i got a right to do this. i got a right to do that. Especially in the day of men, women's lib. I have, you know, I hear about these libbers all the time. I tell folks, I'm not a libber, I'm a ribber. Because the Bible said God took a rib and made a woman. One, and someone says, well, women not liberated. They've always been liberated. He said, well, we got a head. That means I'm not liberated. Oh, yes. If the man's what he's supposed to be, he's got a head too. way it works, take Christ when he offered himself unto God the Father. Remember Gethsemane? When he said, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus was saying, Father, I don't have any rights. Whatever you want, I give myself unto whatever you want for me. Back to that same concept. Don't miss this. He said, I'm going to give myself unto you, Father, until I want thy will done, not mine. So he gave up all his rights unto the Heavenly Father. The wife doesn't have any rights. She gives hers all up to Christ, first of all, and then she submits herself unto that husband. And when she sacrifices herself to be unto her husband all that God requires... She says, I have given myself unto Christ first of all, and now I'm going to submit myself unto my husband to be unto him all that God requires me to be because I've given myself unto the Lord. So she says, honey, I submit myself unto your authority. And then the husband turns around and says, well, I have a head too. Therefore, I have self-sacrificed myself and given myself unto the Lord, and I will be unto Christ everything that God wants me to be, so I've given up my rights. She's given up hers. He's given up his. And then Christ turns around and said, I give mine unto the Heavenly Father. Therefore, I don't have any rights. So the only one left with the rights as to what right is is the Heavenly Father. So he turns and passes it back down, not in rights, but in responsibilities. So he passed it back down to Christ what his responsibility was to go and die on a cross. So he said, not my will, but thine be done. Therefore, he carried out the responsibility given unto him, which was, which was the will of the Father. So, now he comes down to the husband and says, Husband, love your wives. And the husband must carry out the responsibility because he doesn't have any rights. He's got responsibilities. And he passes love on down to that wife. And now she doesn't have any rights either. All she's got is responsibility. And what did it say the wife was to do? Submit to the husband. That's the response of the responsibilities. And so she turns around and responds to the husband and gives herself to the husband. He turns around and responds to Christ and gives himself to Christ. Christ turns around and gives himself to the Father. And the Father gets the glory. So that means none of us got any rights but the Father. And so the Father has the right to set the standard as to how I treat my wife. And the Father has the right to set the standard how my wife treats me. And yet, you say, well, what gives him the right? We sacrificed ourselves unto the Lord. We gave ourselves unto the Lord for His will to be done. And then we submitted ourselves one to another to be all that our head required. And so the woman's supposed to be all that the husband requires. You say, but that's bad. Uh-uh. Because if he submits himself unto the Lord and he's all that the Lord wants, then the Lord's all that the Father wants, then you're going to get the best end of the deal, which means you're going to get it three ways before it gets to you. You ladies just don't know how good you've got it made. Boy, you have. you got it made because by the time the father loves the son, the son loves the husband, the husband loves the wife, you already got three loves passed on to you. And see, you're the one, you're the recipient on the tail end that if you're responding and submitting, everything's coming your way. And you're passing it back up. And you're responding. He turns around and responds. Jesus responds. And the father gets the glory. And that's how it all ends up in glory. 
So that's how it's supposed to be. If you recognize, like the husband, if he recognizes, said, I have a head, my head is Christ. The wife says, I have a head, my head is my husband. And then each one say, well, I'm under the other one, but I'm receiving from the other one what God expects me to be. So the husband passes it up and says, Father, I don't have any rights. How do you want me to treat my wife? And he passes it down and says, love your wife. I say, yes, sir, that's my responsibility to be unto the other what you commanded me to be because I gave myself up and I gave up my rights. And that's the same thing with you ladies. You don't look up and say, well, I got a right to, I got my equal rights. You hadn't got any equal rights. Husband hadn't got any equal rights. None of us got any rights. We just got responsibilities. But praise God, if I carry them out, the response is so good, I don't want any rights. <laughs> Man, this is, this is a give in both ways. Gives going up in rights and comes back in responsibilities and goes back up in response and ends up with glory. And that's the way it is in the home. Because when all this happens, you know what there is in the home? There's melody. Oh, when the home gets to making melody. Oh, when they're singing, making melody in the home, there's nothing sweeter than the Holy Ghost playing on the wife's heart and her being everything she's supposed to be for the glory of God. And there's nothing any sweeter than God making melody in the husband and pouring out the love on the wife and being to the wife all that God commanded and all that He required. And whenever that's going, you've got a song in the marriage and there's sweetness in the melody of the relationship of the husband and the wife. And yet someone says, well, I'll be what I want to be. Selfishness never brings glory. And if you're saved, you'll be the most miserable person on the face of God's earth. And so he says, why do you... Taking his, his amphicillin and, and uh, because I had some infection in both ears. And I'm taking so much along with an antihistamine that dries me up. And like I told you the other night, I hate to be a dry preacher. So I'm doing everything I can to wet this one down. But neither do I want to be all wet, amen? <clears throat> but therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now that's an attitude again of saying, I take my place under you. And you are the head of this home. You're the, my head. You're the head of my life. Now, this is submitting, not sacrificing. The sacrificing took place back up there when you gave yourself unto God. And this is submitting. This is taking your place as the wife in the home like you're supposed to be. The husband in the home like you're supposed to be. And the wife is supposed to submit and take her place and love her husband. Now, let me say this. There are different kinds of love in the Scripture. There's what is called a phile love. This is the Greek word phile. The word phile means a love of likes. There's what's called a physical love. Now, physical love you have naturally. There's nothing wrong with physical love. This is affectionate, tender love. This is even in the sex area. There's nothing wrong with sex. There's nothing wrong with hugging and kissing. Nothing, nothing wrong with caressing one another in the marriage relationship. That's precious. And you need it. There's not one thing wrong with it. In its place, physical love. Then you have the love of likes, which is phile love. But then you have what I call a precious love, which is the agape love, which is the love of God. And this is the love that he told the husband to love the wife. But God doesn't say for the wife to fillet her husband or to agape her husband. The wife's love is mentioned, I believe, in the book of Titus. 
It is the word philandros. And it says that the aged women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. Now you elderly ladies, did you know that you're teachers for God? You say, but I, I can't teach a class. I didn't say you taught a class. I said you're teachers for God. You're supposed to teach the younger ladies. You're supposed to teach your young ladies that grow up in your home. You're supposed to teach those young ladies that you know to love their husbands. And the word philandros is a word that means tender and affectionate love. It's a love of response. It's a, it's a love of sharing and of giving, of tenderness, preciousness. Well, when the wife is giving love of this tight response and submitting to that husband, and he is loving in return, you've got a heavenly relationship. There's nothing any more precious than a love relationship. And a wife does not mind submitting herself unto a loving husband. And both of them, when they surrender to God to be all that God requires unto the other like Christ did. Oh, whenever we submit ourselves unto Christ to be to that mate what God requires, we don't mind sacrificing ourselves to be what God requires unto them. That's what he's saying. Oh, i got an obligation to God. To treat my mate according to God's standard of right. I don't miss this, folks. The saints of God have an obligation. The husband and wife have an obligation to treat our mates according to God's standard of right. God has a right to command us. God has a right to state the responsibilities. God has the right to regulate us. God tells us. You say, why? Because He's our Lord. He's our owner. But God also has a right to command us as to what is right. Did you know that the mistreatment of my mate is first a sin against God and then against my mate? You husbands and wives here tonight, if you mistreat your mate, it is first a sin against God. It's not a sin against your mate. First, it's a sin against God. Because the mistreatment was not how God the Father treated God the Son. And it's not how God the Son treats the husband. And God doesn't want mistreatment. And any time we mistreat our mates and not unto the other, what God requires, it's a sin and needs to be confessed to God first and then to the mate. Saying, I hadn't been a loving husband to you like, you re like God required me to be. I haven't been a submitting wife like God required me to be. And who requires you to be submitted? Not the husband, God. This is not the concept of a king and a slave. I see some men who want to be treated like kings. Boy, you want to be treated like a king? Treat your wife like a queen. Let her see. She has a place in the family too. God requires. God requires certain obligations to be treated to each other. And you say, but preacher, I just can't be all that God requires. Now listen to this. Our opportunity to treat our mates properly is afforded us by being filled with the Spirit. If I don't love my wife like God requires me to love her, it's because I wasn't submitted to the Spirit of God. If I had been submitted to the Spirit of God, I would have treated her like God wanted me to treat her because I would have sacrificed myself unto the Lord to give myself up for her to treat her as God requires and vice versa. But here's the truth. The mistreatment of my mate is an evidence that I wasn't filled with the Spirit. You say, well, what does that mean? That means, ladies and gentlemen, that I can't excuse myself if I treat my mate wrong. 
And I can't say to God, God, you know, you know it's my mate's fault because I didn't treat her or him right. And God said, if you'd been filled with the Spirit, you'd acted right. Mm-hmm. And we can't say, well, God, I didn't have an opportunity. Every one of us has access to the Spirit of God's leadership to be what God requires as husband or wife. Now, here's another truth. Our operation of these rights and privileges in relationship to the mate must be carried out in daily experience. Which is one thing to say, I love my wife, something else to prove the love. It's something else to say, I'm submitted to her, to him, and something else to show it. These delegated responsibilities that God has. Now look at what he says, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, this is, fellas, this is as hard on you as it is on me. This, this word for love, this is not the word philae. This is not a love of likes. Uh, see, all of us have a love of likes. And uh, there are some marriages that are made on physical love and philae love. Like if a boy or girl gets married and they're married because of their physical attraction, their, their lust being stimulated and whatnot, and their affection for each other in that area. And they get to married because they like certain things about each other. And that's the only two. stands a good chance the marriage won't make it. Because that type of love dies somewhere along the way. Like, for instance, uh, uh, you can't get married, and if it's just a physical attraction, that's all. After a while, you may lose your attraction to your mate and think, well, now I I need another mate. And if it's a love of likes, after a while, you may find more that you dislike about the person than more than you like. Because, see, you marry each other for what you think each other is instead of how they really are. And usually you have to find out how they really are the first year, and you find out more that you dislike than what you like, then you're disappointed. I think that's the reason God's honeymoon plan needs to be brought back. Book of Deuteronomy says, He that married a wife shall not be charged with any business, nor go to war for one full year, but shall stay at home to cheer his wife. That's the best honeymoon plan there is. Lord knows most women need cheering the first year. He said, they'll not even go to war. They won't be charged with any business. They'll just stay home and cheer that woman. <laughs> Isn't that good? Prescott, wouldn't that be great? He didn't say go anywhere. He just says stay at home with her and cheer her up. That's a honeymoon plan if you've ever read one. Well, now listen. It's just, it's just like a young lady. If, if she's attracted to a young boy and, and, and boys, certain things about him that she likes, like for instance, if... Boy, she likes his physique, and she likes his hair, and she says, boy, I'm attracted to him too. We're going to get married. So she calls that love. Well, after a while, that physical attraction starts dying down, and the love of life starts changing because first thing you know, his figure, his physique starts changing, and it shifts around. And first thing you know, the hair that she's in love with falls out. And when it fell out, she fell out of love with him. But you know, I say thing about that husband, you know, he fell in love with her, thought his love, because, you know, it, it was a physical attraction, and, you know, they got married on that, and, and boy, he liked her because she was five foot two, and boy, was she shaped, boy, just right, everything was just perfect, and he said, man, I like that, and, and then after about three or four kids, she was five, still five foot two, but she just wasn't shaped, just like she used to be, and she, he said, well, you know what, I don't love her anymore, something done happened to my love, no, it was a love of life. See, now the love of likes a precious love. The filet love is, it's a, it's an assimilated love, but it means to love those because you like certain things about another person, and it means to love someone because of the satisfaction you receive from that individual. 
But the word agape means to love someone irregardless of the looks, disposition, or anything else of the individual. It means to love not because of what they do, because of, but because of what's in you. And it says, husbands, you love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it on its behalf. And said, you give yourself, said, you love her because of what's in you and not what's in her. You don't look down and say, well, now, if you were right with God or if you, you know, if you change this, that, and the other, I'd love you. Uh-uh, this love overshadows the fillet and overshadows the physical love and makes it a precious love and makes you accept her even when there are things you don't particularly like about her. But if she's right with God, she's trying to change everything to be all that God requires. And then you put up with her and you put up with him. And first thing you know, the love covers a multitude of sins. And you say, well, honey, honey I just love you because God loved me. And if God loved me, I'd love you we love each other and we get to respond to each other and it becomes heavenly. Oh, he says, husbands, love your wives. Now, this is, this is the verb, but let me tell you what the noun means. 1 Corinthians 13 is the noun. Agape. You remember 1 Corinthians 13 where he said love and he gave about 10, 11 things there? Oh, let me, let me read you how we're supposed to love our wives. I went down, I, I chose these out of the Amplified text because I, I like their wording. It means the same thing. But I put on the end of them because he said, like, charity suffereth long in the King James Version. But when he said charity is the word of God, it means love suffereth long. And here's how we're supposed to love our wives. And it, it goes something like this. First, and this is an interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and following. Love endures long and is patient and kind toward our wives. Love never is envious nor boils over in jealousy toward our wives. Love is not boastful or vainglorious toward our wives. Love does not display itself haughtily, which is pride mingled with contempt toward our wives. Love is not conceited, arrogant, or inflated with pride toward our wives. Love is not rude, unmannerly, does not act unbecomingly toward our wives. Love does not insist on its own rights or its own way, is not self-seeking toward our wives. Love is not touchy, fretful, or resentful toward our wives. Love takes no account of the evil done to it toward our wives. Love does not rejoice in injury and injustice and unrighteousness toward our wives. Love rejoices when right and truth prevail. Now what he said is, that's the way the Holy Ghost loves the wife through you. And that's how we're supposed to love that wife. And once we're loving her and she is responding and submitting, we're all in the line of submission. It says those husbands are to love their wives and give themselves. And the concept of giving himself is just like Christ gave himself on the behalf of others. You give yourself as though you're sharing your innermost being on the part of your wife. You're giving yourself for her. You're giving yourself unto her and being unto her all that God required you to be. That's back to the sacrifice. The husband saying, I give myself to God to be all unto my wife that God requires me to be. I give up myself, I, my desires, my, all that I want to be unto Christ. And in giving myself unto Him, now God, by the Holy Ghost, I want you to make all that I'm supposed to be in me unto my wife. And that's what it means for a husband to love his wife. And all oh, this wife loving that husband. But then he said and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. This is the procreation of the church. 
how she's brought into existence. And he said, husbands, you love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, brought it into existence. This is also the preparation of the church and the presentation of the church unto himself. Look at verse 28. So all men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Now, here the love for the wife is because she is his own body. So ought men to love their wives as his own body. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. The word nourish means to support, to supply, and to sustain her. To cherish her means to hold her and to treat her as dear with tenderness and affection. Oh, now we come into that precious part. All that love is forming and you're supporting, you're taking care of her, but you're seeing her as though she were your own body. You won't appreciate that until we get on a little further over. But he said we're members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Here he's speaking of Christ and the church again. Now what does it mean by being a member of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones? If you remember the Old Testament, you know that when God was ready to make Eve, according to Genesis chapter 2, and Adam had been made out of the dust of the ground. The scripture says that God opened up the side of Adam and took out a rib. Now I preach a sermon over there called Someone to Love. And I'm not going to preach a sermon, but let me give you the points to it. First, you see the operation on the man. And this illustrates this passage right here. The operation on the man was Adam. God put him to sleep. God performed surgery on his side. God took up the substance called the rib. Then you see the origination of the woman. God took the rib, formed and fashioned and made bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Eve was not just made for Adam, but she's made from Adam. From Adam, for Adam. From the substance that came out of his body, literally bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, so that he could look at her and say, you're not just for me, you are me. You're made from my heart. You're made from my side, what came out of me. And then, God brought her and gave her unto the man, the scripture said. Oh, that's the presentation of Eve unto Adam. Now you've got the concept, the concept of this passage, where he said that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, according to the book of Corinthians, Jesus was the last Adam. Not the second Adam, but the last Adam. The last Adam was put to sleep on Calvary. From his side, when they pierced his side with the sword, came the substance from which the bride, the church, is created. We're created in Christ Jesus. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. We're not made from a rib, but from the blood that flowed from his side. And the woman, the church, like Eve, never would have been had it not been for the substance that came from Adam and Jesus. Eve owed her existence unto Adam. The church owes her existence unto the Son of God. Therefore, he says to the husbands and wives, the same way of Matthew 19 in the marriage relationship, when you marry a woman, brother, when you accept her as yours, you look at her not as just for you, but as you. He said, husband, you love her as you love your own body because God looks at you and says, now you're bone of each bone. You belong to one another. And he said, you nourish her just like you would your own body because she is yours. And the same way that Adam looked at Eve and the same way Jesus looked at the church is the way the husband is supposed to look at the wife. 
That's a holy relationship. That's a sacred relationship. And he says, now you nourish her and you cherish her because she is your own body. Then he said, verse 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. You know what that is. Uh, that's oneness in the family. That's unity. That's where they're joined up. And the next verse said, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Oh, he's showing you the unity that we have, the union that we have, how we were joined up. And there's a difference in unity and harmony. It's like when you got married. It's one thing to get married, something else to learn how to live together. Well, here he says that for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. This is a sense of belonging to each other. This is an understanding that each one has. We've submitted ourselves unto each other. We've given ourselves for each other. Now we belong to each other. And he said this father, this son, this man, shall leave his father and mother. Now this word for leave means to leave behind, to depart, to depart from. And the word join means to be glued to means to cleave, to stick to. What he's saying is that you can't, he's not saying that you can't live in the house with your daddy and mother, sir. But he's saying, once you get married, sir, that wife of yours is your responsibility and not your parents. He's saying, sir, when you married that wife, you didn't marry her for your parents to tell her what to do. She's not under your parents, she's under you, sir. And said, you leave mom and daddy. In other words, you take on some responsibility and don't be mama pet. You know, some men let their mom and daddy try to tell them how to treat their wives. Uh-uh, you treat your wife just like God said to treat them. And the way he said do it is, first of all, in receiving them and being glued to them, stick to them. You tell your parents and everybody else what you got to say about my wife you said about me because we're one, we're one flesh. And if you're going to brag on me, you're bragging on her. If you brag on her, you brag on me. But if you insult her, you've insulted me. And I won't let you talk about her just like you don't talk about me because we're one. You know, that'd save a lot of marriages if husbands and wives would do that. But that's what he's saying. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, my mother was the type of individual, she's going to tell you what to do, I don't care what. Now, she's just that way. I mean, she, she'd tell me how to drive and couldn't drive a lick. She's just that way. I'd go, out, I'd go out in the rain. She'd say, son, have you got your umbrella? Get your umbrella. Even after I was married, she'd do that. But, you know, I learned how to live with it. I found out how she was, and I accepted her as such, and I respected my mother. But after I left the house, I knew what my mother said. You know, if I, if I didn't want to carry an umbrella, I didn't carry one. I wasn't disrespect for her. And then when I married Rachel, uh, my mother sat in and tell Rachel how I like my biscuits and how I like my shirts ironed and, and how to wash them and how to take care of me and what time I like my meals and all that kind of stuff. One day Rachel just burst into tears. I said, honey, I want to tell you something. I said, my mother is the way she is. I've tried to tell her not to tell you what to do, but she's going to tell you because she still tells me. And I said, but remember this, you don't have to do one thing she says. This is what I say. <laughs> I said, we're in this together. You're my wife and you're my responsibility. And I said, if there's a question as to whether or not you're supposed to come, and we'll sit down and talk about it. But he said, we belong to one another. Then verse 33, he said, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, you ladies really liked all that list I read to you a while ago, didn't you, about men supposed to love your husbands, all that? Let me show you what reverence here means. Now, see, if that husband's loving you and he's dishing out all this 
love and, and tenderness and kindness, what's he getting in return? This word for reverence here, according to the Amplified text, means she notices him, regards him, honors him, prefers him, venerates and esteems him. And she defers to him, praises him, and loves and admires him exceedingly. Boy, I like that. I'm going to take it home and let Rachel read that. She can get to come tonight. Boy, I'll take this home preach this to her. Let her listen to this tape. Oh, she's heard it before. In fact, I read it to her today. I want her to get it. Amen. See, I practice what I preach. I usually practice it on her before I ever preach it. See, she says, well, if I can get it, anybody can get it. She says, I'm her sounding board. But what he's saying is this is the ideal relationship. Oh, see... If we've given, surrendered ourselves unto the Lord and we submit ourselves unto each other, we're submitting, we're sacrificing first ourselves unto the Lord to be all to the other that God requires. And then it's not a, and not a matter of saying I've got a right. It's saying I've got a responsibility to be to all that God requires me to be. For the husband to say, Lord, how do you want me to treat my wife? Just like the scripture says, Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. The word for bitter is the Greek word. It means cutting. It means harsh, causing pain, making anger, irritate, annoy. It means sharp and biting like a distasteful thing. Disagreeable taste. All right, now if I were to say, now Lord, I got a right to cut her. I got a right to criticize her. I'd be breaking the law of God. I'd be breaking the law of Christ is what it means. Not the legalistic law of the Old Testament. But... God requires of me to love my wife and not be bitter against her. All right, if I am bitter against her, it's a sign I wasn't submitted to the Spirit of God. Somewhere I didn't give myself up unto Christ to be unto her all that God required me to be. But that same thing's true of the wife. It works both ways. But I have a responsibility unto God to love my wife and not be not bitter against her. But I also have a responsibility, according to 1 Peter 3, 7, to honor my wife. Because the Bible said, husbands, honor your wives. Give honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Which means she has as much a responsibility in our home as I do. She has a responsibility of as wife and mother, and I have a responsibility as a husband and father. And I don't try to take hers, and she doesn't take mine. We both try to share in each other's lives and be unto other what God commanded. And when we do, there's a heaven relationship, a heavenly, precious relationship of love flowing from God the Father to the Son to the husband to the wife and back and forth through us all until where it's just like a house built of love at the house. That's the ideal. That's what he wants. That's what he requires. But I'll tell you something else about husbands. First Corinthians 14.35 said, let the women learn anything like they ask of their husbands at home. You say, well, you mean a woman can't say anything? No, it's not that a woman can't give a word of testimony or a woman can't pray. But what it means is this. The husband is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home. And he's supposed to share with the wife spiritual things. And to a large extent, a woman's spirituality depends on the husband. He shares with her. Shares what goes on at church. That doesn't mean he tells her all the business into that and things he's not, like Deacon's meeting or things, it doesn't mean he shares with her. But what it means is this, that he is the spiritual leader and the spiritual teacher and he shares with her her responsibility. Just like there's some women you can tell. Have you ever seen one of these old bossy type women get up in a business meeting and open their mouths? You ever seen one of those get up and tell the church what to do? I knew that fella, husband of hers, wasn't putting his foot down at the house and he hadn't told her how to act or she wouldn't be misbehaving at the meeting house of God. 
You know, a woman who opens her mouth like she's not supposed to at church, it's a sign the husband hadn't opened his like he's supposed to at the house. Because if he had, she wouldn't be opening hers at the church. You're welcome. But what I'm saying is, it's supposed to be a love relationship and a sharing. Man, sharing in each other's lives. And, and he says you do that by submitting. You say, well, preacher, I just can't love my wife. Submit yourself to the Holy Ghost. The reason you can't, sir, is because you're not willing to self-sacrifice yourself and give yourself to Jesus. You still want to boss the show. You want to boss yourself, you want your wife to be all you want her to be, and you require her and try to make a slave out of her, and you become a dictator, and God's not pleased with that. He doesn't want a dictator out of you. You say, well, she's supposed to be in subjection to me. Not with your attitude like that. She will be in subjection anyhow. She's under you, because it doesn't alleviate her just because you're not what you're supposed to be. But what I'm saying to you is this. Your wife is not supposed to be under you all that you require, but all that God requires. Oh, when we see this, there's no problem if you give yourself first. If we sacrifice ourselves, give ourselves first to the Lord, then we don't mind submitting to each other. And then it's precious. Then it's glorious. Then it's good. And then you say, well, Lord, man, I want to find out how else I'm I'm supposed to treat that mate. Lord, how can I do it? Holy Ghost. That's when you said, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And that means to be under authority. To be obedient to. He said, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment of promise. And that means to value. You say, well, boy, I can't beat them. I can't honor my parents. You can if you submit yourself to the Lord, young folks. This is also for the young people just like it is for the parents. The word honor here, value, means to estimate the value thereof. Have you ever considered your parents? My mother wouldn't let me disrespect show disrespect to my daddy even though some people would have said my daddy wasn't worthy of respect my daddy drank liquor most of his life till he was saved at the age of 65 I don't guess my daddy ever assumed headship of responsibility around my home but you know what even in all those years of drinking my mother would have worn me out if I'd have sassed my dad I she said son he's your daddy and whether he's what he's supposed to be or not, you're going to respect him as your dad. You know what he says to young folk? He says, young folk, give yourself unto the Lord. Submit yourself unto the Spirit of God. And then evaluate that's your dad. And that's your mother. And under that evaluation, you give them the honor that's due unto them as your parents. And you say, well, how can I do that? Because the honor is not coming from the object loved, but from the head. And that's God the Father. That's coming from God the Father, causing you to honor them because of what's in you and not what's in me. Oh, he says, young folks, children, he said, be obedient. He said, in the Lord, love you, obey your parents in the Lord. Put yourself in subjection unto them in the Lord. That doesn't mean... If they tell you to go get drunk, you've got to go get drunk. If they tell you to sin, you've got to go sin. That's not what it's saying at all. It's saying in the Lord, as the Lord surrendered to do the will of God the Father to be unto others what He required, so you surrender yourself unto the Lord to be unto them all that God requires you to be. 
And then he said, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The word provoke means to arouse. And he says, but bring them up, which means to rear them. And then he said, in the nurture, which is training by act. And then he said, admonition, which is training by word. And said, bringing them up and teaching them, chastening them if necessary, but more than chastening them, disciplining them, all the children, the parents, being everything they're supposed to be. And he does the same thing to the servants, verse 5, and to the masters in verse 9. But what he's saying is servants and masters. He's saying just like on your job. If you've got a master over you, you've got a foreman over you, you've got a boss over you, you be unto your boss everything God wants you to be. You be the right kind of employee. But then he says, those of you who are the bosses, you be unto those employees all that God requires you to be as the boss man. All he's saying in this life, folks, is that the key to victory as a children of God is to let people see the church in its subjection to Jesus Christ. Submit ourselves unto him. He loves us and we're submitting unto him. Come into the home and find that sacrificial giving of ourselves into the will of God. And then we say the will of God's good, acceptable, and perfect. And looking and seeing each one each other in his own place and doing what God requires. And then we say, God, that's acceptable, that's perfect, that's good. Your will is the best thing for me to love my wife, that's good, God. For me to submit to my husband, that's good, God. Because Christ loved and submitted to himself. And it's all to the glory of God the Father. What's the purpose of it all? That's it. That God may get the glory.